Welcome to episode 69 of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco, and thanks for joining us at the Page One podcast again, uh, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, how they got into the industry, and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. We've spoken to authors, script writers, comics writers, video game writers, comedians, journalists, and any other kind of writer is always welcome on the show. <laughs> so do check out the back catalogue. There's a lot of good names there. Um, but we do have a, another great guest this week. We have an excellent guest this week on uh, on the on the 69th episode, Marco. And I know Marco promised, maybe made me promise that I wouldn't say anything, but it's, it's hard not to when it's Good. It's Let's keep going. Keep it going. Keep it going. Episode 69 means, Marco. It was more one, one more episode, episode till, till 70. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this week, D.V. Bishop, is on this week, who is an author of City of Vengeance, uh, which we chat to him about. It's a historical thriller. Uh, he's also very big in uh, Judge Dread World, which is something Mark was very excited about. Yeah, he he was uh, formerly uh, editor of Judge Dread, Mag- Judge Dread the magazine when it started, and then um, 2000 AD as well for a bit in the 90s. Um, so he's, he's and it, it was really interesting speaking to him about that and how he got into it, because he was a journalist who then just applied for uh, a job, basically, and, and suddenly became the, the editor of, of Judge Dredd, the magazine, which was um, quite a... You know, these comics were pretty big in the, in the 90s. They're still big now, but, you know, that was that was when mm, it was really... Haiti. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was interesting hearing about, you know, what his role was as the editor as opposed to sort of writing stories and then moving on to writing his own fiction as well. So he's written comics, which we chat to him about, but... He was working on City of Vengeance, which is set in 1536, I think, in Florence, for over 20 years, I think he said. Yeah, it's been a, a novel a long time in the making. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he, he won the competition at the Bloody Scotland Crime Festival. He got the Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship Award mm-hmm. while he was writing it. So it's had a lot of buzz, you know, the whole way along. So it's yep. exciting to finally see the final book in his hands, I think. It is. And it's an it's a interesting historical novel as well, because it's obviously historical and it's as we speak to him he was very keen to keep it true to the historical facts mm-hmm. um but at the same time it's got a very modern structure and pacing i think and the way the yeah. characters speak to each other i think is is quite modern which it i like in a historical novel you know it's yeah. not ye olde english that yeah, been, totally or ye exactly olde right. italian it's, um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's something that i think robert harris does well in his historical books which is you don't you feel like you're learning about stuff but you don't feel like it's 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 an old isn't feel isn't read like an old book it's yeah. like a modern book even though it's set old yeah. times and it's for me that's the way i like to to read historical fiction yeah it? definitely so um yeah it's a really interesting chat uh, with david so um we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest but for now on with the podcast The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. 
But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. I always start these podcasts by asking our guests if they always wanted to be a writer, but I, I know that you've had a very varied and quite a long career in involved in writing in, in some aspects for a long time. So how, how did that all begin? Oh, just uh, like an awful lot of writers, I was a voracious reader as a as a as a boy. I grew up in New Zealand, and uh, I just read everything I could get my hands on. Um, so you know, sort of, I can't really remember what I started reading, but whatever it was, you know, the usual things, sort of, you know, Famous Five and mysteries, and then moving on from there, and yep. Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, and anything I could lay my hands on comic books and books and uh my 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 dad was uh he was a big fan of reader's digest condensed books right uh which you don't really see in the uk but which was a big thing mm-hmm. um so uh that's a way of they would have long novels and they would do like the 200 page version of the novel with any swear words and any sex taken out i, <laughs> I discovered years later <laughs> <laughs> i always wondered how those work how do they choose how to what to cut out and how to slim it down is it is it literally just take out the sex and the violence and it should be pretty much uh no oh it's uh, abridgment is its own peculiar skill set um we i i run a program a, a creative writing program the the masters at Edinburgh Navy University we actually mm-hmm. used to teach a class on um, on abridgment and how you do it. All but right, sort of a, it's a slightly dying field at the moment. You don't tend to see a lot of abridgment publications mm-hmm. anymore. So we decided, well, there wasn't a lot of work going, so there's no point teaching it as a skill. But it's, <laughs> only, it's a very peculiar skill to be the ability to to dramatically cut out huge chunks of a story while keeping the essence and the tone yeah. Yeah. And of it Definitely. alive. For readers, I just they also removed, you know, sort of the swearing and the sex as well. I only discovered this decades later when I was on holiday in Morocco, I think it was, with no money. And uh, the hotel had a sort of left behind library of the books that nobody wanted to put in their suitcase. <laughs> so I ended up reading The Thornbirds. Um, 
which I'd read as a as a Reader's Digest condensed book uh, decades earlier. And I went, my God, there's a lot of shagging in this. I don't remember <laughs> any. Where, when, when, when were all these priests having sex? I don't remember any of this. So there you go. That was a slight shock to the <laughs> But yeah, I can understand why my dad was perfectly happy for me to be reading the entirety of yeah. you know, the Reader's Digest condensed book library at the age of 9, 10, 11, because <laughs> yeah. I wasn't getting too much of the source. So. <laughs> And, and from there, where, where did that that obviously sparked uh, the, the the desire to start writing your own stories? Did it? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I I've always had a bit of a wild imagination, and I started. I think the first story I can remember writing was like you know famous by fanfic, effectively, mm-hmm. which mostly seemed to. And this is like at the age of seven or eight, mostly seemed to involve you know being tied up in caves. <laughs> Slightly worrying as a as a tendency, but nonetheless, um, uh, it's the the mystery element and sort of the threat and and the jeopardy just very much appealed to me. Yep. And then uh, I've long been a Doctor Who fan, so the level of jeopardy in Doctor Who has has sort of stuck with me. So the other thing I read voraciously uh, growing up was the Doctor Who novelizations, the Target books, mm. where they adapted you know uh, Doctor Who stories and into relatively easy to read versions. Um, I'm particularly growing up in New Zealand where we didn't see vast chunks of Doctor Who, so you only had the books to go on. So it was always a disappointment when you actually got to watch the real stories on, on VHS <laughs> years later and discovered that's nowhere near as good as my imagination. Yeah. Um, wow, those sets really are rubbish. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so, so I started writing my own stories and inventing my own stories and, you know, building little books all of my own and trying to convince people to read them. And so it's, it's been a lifelong passion of reading and writing. And, and so it's inevitably led in that direction. So after school, I, uh, I trained as a journalist uh, because it sort of met my skill set of being both a blabbermouth and liking to write. Um, and, and so that was, you know, uh, I was a journalist for, for five years in New Zealand and then immigrated to the UK um and uh became a comics editor very quickly after that so mm-hmm. yeah and and yeah so on on that path i mean how did that happen from being a journalist how did you how did you become a comics editor in the uk what, what, you know it's it's a how sort of opportunity that, yeah well i mean the the reality is comics editorial for the most part certainly through the 70s and the 80s i mean i joined it in the 90s but there was a tradition of sort of train journalism mm-hmm. uh, was how people went went into comics, particularly for people who only aspired to be editors as opposed to editors who really wanted to be writers, which became the, the way of things in comics through the 90s. Basically, people mm-hmm. went in, it, into editorial as a stepping stone into getting to write their own comics. And what um, exactly is, when, when, when you say you're like an editor of, of a comic, how does that, how is that different than being being like a writer on on the comic what what's your role in that in that uh... oh gosh uh well uh, many things uh you commission the writers to write the scripts mm-hmm. uh you commission the artists to draw the scripts uh, if there's colorists you need to commission them letterers as well you need to work with the writers to get the scripts as good as they could possibly be in the time and budget you have available uh then you have to find the best artists you can in the time and budget you have available um and get them to draw it and then all the other production processes involved in it. There's a lot of sub-editing, making sure it's 
fit for publication, fits the space available, is as good as it can possibly be, uh, managing the budgets, all the other things involved in an editorial capacity, really. And frequently, I mean, when I was, I edited uh, a title called The Judge Street Magazine for five years, and then I moved on to 2000 AD, for, which for anybody who doesn't know is basically sort of the mothership of British comics, mm -hmm. and where anybody who has worked in comics certainly up until the last five or 10 years and went on to work in other like American comics went through the charm school of 2000 AD and sort of uh, cut their teeth there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So you, at any given moment when I was editing 2000 AD, I would be work. I had had 60 or 70 freelance creatives, writers, artists, colorists, letterers oh, wow. all around the world working for me and having to manage all of their schedules so that each week a new 32 page comic was released into the wild to our readers and keep hold of the budget and expenditure and all the other things involved. So you, it was basically a two-person uh, machine required. We commissioned 1,600 pages of new story uh, and art every year for publication. Mm -hmm. Um, and every year the budget was cut by another 5 10%. <laughs> it was a bit of a challenge at times. <laughs> yeah, can imagine. Um, but I... yeah, so I got into that. I... When I immigrated to the UK, I had skills as a journalist. I had a little bit of training as a sub-editor. And I met a man called John Freeman, who was the editor of Doctor Who magazine at the time and ended up being my flatmate. And I went to see him for a job. He said, oh, there's no job here, uh, which was slightly disappointing because that's where all my hopes were pinned. Um, <laughs> but he said, just get, the, just get the Guardian newspaper on a Monday. In those days, there were jobs advertised in the Guardian on a Monday. Um, and just apply for every job you see. So I ended up working at a a TV listings magazine, sort of like the Radio Times, mm. but for one of the satellite channels. And then I saw a job advertised to to become an assistant editor at Fleetway, uh, who were the publishers of 2080, and, and they were launching uh, new titles at the start of the 90s. And so I ended up working on the Judge Dredd magazine when it was launched in September 1990. And so oh. I, I worked with a man called Steve McManus, who had been editing comics for the better part of 20 years by that point and learnt my craft from him. I just, it was like a, an apprenticeship, learn how to be a good comics editor and, uh, you know, help your creators create the best possible material. And um, most of that actually is employ good people and get out of their way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is, is the, the best thing that a comics editor can do is be invisible. Really. It's like the music in a film. If you notice it, then you've, they've sort of intruded too much into the process. They've, it should be like great lettering in comics should be invisible. You shouldn't even notice it's there. Mm -hmm. uh, it should be so uh, seamless that you just, you're absorbed into the story, the narrative and the artwork. You don't notice lettering. And so you shouldn't notice an editor. An editor should be somebody who's behind the scenes who facilitates like a book editor is to a large extent, mostly mm -hmm. invisible. Yeah. And, and and when you were there as well, you, you did then start writing some stories for it as well is that right yeah well, i started i mean i i always had ambitions to write it was one of the reasons why i wanted to move out of journalism into mm -hmm. a more creative field was sort of five years as a as a daily newspaper journalist um i was tired of writing other people's stories and going around and finding out other people doing things and then reporting on it i was like yeah that's fine but i wanted to be telling stories of my own and um so yeah so going into comics was great because it was a creative outlet i could you know, one of the things I really enjoyed was finding new writers and artists 
and helping you know helping them build their careers and learn their craft and I was learning alongside them at the same time making plenty of mistakes along the way um <laughs> but um so yeah so I wanted to Steve uh McManus who was my mentor he always said you know the thing he regretted most was that he started writing when he started an editorial but he didn't keep it up he sort of got sucked into just the editorial job and it consumed all no time and space because comics editing can be like that mm-hmm. um, because it's a full-time job and, and you give it the office and there's nothing left when you get home. So I was determined to try and keep writing. So I wrote some not very good comics uh, at the start of my comics career. And then um, the Judge Dredd film was was coming in the mid-90s, the one starring Sylvester Stallone. Virgin Books got a license to publish uh, original novels set in the Judge Dredd universe and they didn't have anybody who could possibly write it because most of the people who were writing Doctor Who and other things for for Virgin Books, the fiction department at the time, had no knowledge or experience of Judge Dredd and the learning curve involved in a uh, an intellectual property, an IP like that, is pretty steep. Yeah, uh, It's easier if you can get people who actually know the IP to come in and do the work rather than try and get people who can write to learn the IP uh, because it's it's a big ask. I mean, I wrote a couple of... Uh, Warhammer novels for for the Games Workshop imprint, Black Library, and I think the readers could probably tell that I was not wedded in the ways of Warhammer, uh, and I was basically writing my own book with sort of like Warhammer <laughs> stuck on the cover. It's kind of what it boiled down to. In fact, my editor kept telling me off, saying, "Stop calling it a police procedural. It's a Warhammer novel." <laughs> I just wanted to be writing crime fiction and I just like, but that's where the jobs were. So I went where the work was. Um, uh, and so, yeah. when, you, when you're writing a novel like that, like a franchise uh, type novel, um, you know, what, what restrictions are placed on you um, by... I mean, it varies wildly mm-hmm. from, from franchise to franchise, from mm-hmm. IP to IP. So I've written uh, Judge Dredd, I've written Doctor Who, I've written... Uh, Gosh, what else? Uh, the Warhammers. I did a load of other 2008 characters. Nikolai Dante, Fiends of the Eastern Front. I did a Nightmare on Elm Street novel um, at one point. Um, and a lot of those, I mean, it varies completely uh, depending upon how controlling or not they are. So I did a, a, a doc, my first Doctor Who novel was called Who Killed Kennedy, which came out, oh my God, 25 years ago this year, which is terrifying. Um, and at that point in history, Doctor Who... Um, it had been off TV for six years. It was about to come back fleetingly with Paul McGann. Mm-hmm. But there was, it got to the point where it wasn't on telly. The BBC wasn't paying much attention. You could get away with an awful lot. But Ben Aronovich, who does the Rivers of London series, yeah. uh, wrote some pretty notorious <laughs> sequences in some of his Doctor Who uh, original novels. Uh, like Transit in particular has got some saucy moments, um, uh, which you wouldn't get away with now. Um so yeah, and then the other times when I was uh, when I was writing, um, I remember when Doctor Who came back on TV in the in the mid noughties and I was writing uh, Doctor Who audio dramas at that point and other things, and suddenly the restrictions became the attention being paid to the IP by BBC was a lot more stringent, and there was mm-hmm. a lot of things that you absolutely couldn't do in the tie-ins, like. You couldn't mention God or the devil or Satan. You couldn't have magic as such, um, even though, you know, on TV they had a, an episode called The Satan Pit, 
but you couldn't do it in the books. That's you do it on what's what's the reason behind all that stuff? Is there uh, because they don't want to uh, offend people, and they certainly right. don't want to offend uh, like the Daily Mail or the Express <laughs> or the Telegraph. So it's you know it's uh, if something's on the BBC, it's deemed to be like uh, national property because it's funded by the license fee. So mm-hmm. therefore, anybody can complain about anything on the BBC, and the BBC sort of has to snap to attention and respond to their complaints so there's a lot of um uh, being very careful essentially and saying particularly you know because doctor who was deemed as being like sort of this both like a crossover property both suitable for children of seven eight nine ten but also for adults Mm -hmm. so when doctor who was off tv for a long time then the books essentially became a niche market Mm -hmm. for people who used to watch it on tv and who were well into their 20s and 30s and older so it didn't matter. You could have, you know, Saucy Benaronovich being saucy um, and nobody would notice. Whereas when suddenly it's back on TV and, and the giant magnifying glass of, you know, daily coverage of it because it became a hit show again, mm-hmm. suddenly everybody's paying attention to everything. So they have the BBC had to be a lot more quiet. Um, when I did Nightmare on Elm Street, um, I mean, I remember I wrote my pitch for the for the novel and it went off to New Line Cinema in, in L.A. And I waited six months and heard nothing back. And they just came back and said, yeah, that's fine. I was like, OK. And then I just wrote the book and it went away and it came back. And they said, yeah, that's fine. Um, because, I mean, I'd grown up watching Elm Street films, so I knew my Freddy. I was not trying to reinvent the wheel. I was just trying to tell, you know, the best possible Freddy Krueger story I could. Um, so I wasn't, you know, with tie-ins, you have to think of it as like a rental car. It's like you have rented your all-time favorite car that you've always wanted, hopefully, to take out for a drive. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to bring it back intact and unscratched. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you lose your deposit. Um, well, it's the same with tie-ins. You can take it out for a test drive. You can take the TARDIS for a test drive uh, across time and space. But you've got to bring it back in the condition you took it out in. So you don't get to like kill companions, generally speaking. Uh, or you don't get to have the doctor suddenly pick up a machine gun and murder a load of children because strangely <laughs> enough, he doesn't do that. Um, so you have to be true to the tone and spirit and style of the IP that you're working with, but you still have to tell an entertaining, exciting, interesting story. And ideally what you want to do is tell a story they couldn't easily tell on TV or whatever it is, the medium that you've it's been transposed from. So you want to add value to it at the same time. And the whole time you were working in these in the tie-in market, you were working on 2000 AD, etc. You were obviously, you know, because I'm sure I read that your new novel, which we will chat about shortly, City of Vengeance, that was an idea that was kind of 20 years in the making or so. So, I mean, I'm presuming this the whole time you've got this idea that you kind of want to write your own, your own fiction and all this stuff must have been really helpful to you when it came to making that step into doing your own writing, I'm assuming. Just all this exposure and this surrounding yourself with all this different types of fiction writing and each side of the coin, et cetera? I mean, every, uh, absolutely, yes, it's a short answer. I mean, every kind of, uh, I mean, well, okay, writing is a muscle. So if you are writing, you are exercising the muscle, um, and particularly when you're creating narrative, uh, creating story, uh, it's all useful. I mean, there'll be a lot of work that you create along the way in a career that, may not necessarily find the audience you're hoping for or any or any audience at all. I mean, I spent, gosh, the better part of eight, nine years doing screenwriting. 
And I had some success during that time, which was great. I wrote four episodes of a BBC TV drama series called Doctors, which is on mm-hmm. during the day. And I wrote for a, a CBB show as well. Um, but equally, there came a point in, in my screenwriting career where I spent, I think, three years and I was writing things and I was pouring my heart and soul into it. And the problem with screenwriting, if it doesn't get commissioned, then all of that work would just go straight into the bin effectively. Yeah. So yeah. I spent two or three years writing material that was read by three people, maybe, including myself. And that just it breaks your heart as a writer. I mean, I, I suspect I'm always going to be a prose writer at heart. And, the you know, you write to be read. I mean, there's reasons why we all write. Okay, You write because uh, for the love of writing as a process in and of itself, which is not to say that it's lovely the whole time. Sometimes it's pulling teeth and all the other things that we talk mm-hmm. about. Um, and you talk be, and you write because you've, you've got a compulsion to write. You've got stories you want to get out into the world, stories you want to share with other people, ideas and things that are bubbling in your imagination that you need to put down on the page or a screen. And you want other people to enjoy or appreciate or gain something from the experience of your narrative that you've invented. So that's sort of the essence of writing, why why we do it. And there are other reasons. I mean, yeah, we would like to be paid for our labour. Thank you very much. Um, and we would like a little bit of validation every now and then. goes a long way with a writer. You know, <laughs> say good work and they'll be and smile and some of them will be self-deprecating. I mean, I'm terrible at taking the compliment. Um, and other people will absolutely lap it up. Um, so a little validation is helpful. Uh, some people think that you can write and become famous and glamorous, <laughs> which uh, is not my experience. Uh, there are famous writers, but they tend to be absolutely the exception. And I'm not sure the amount of scrutiny that comes with fame these days is quite, quite worth the price of admission. So, um, yeah, you would like you would like your work to be seen by as many people as possible and enjoyed by as many people as possible or at least appreciated by as many people as possible. And if that brings financial rewards, then that's helpful because it enables you to do more work. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, so writing helps you on the journey. And I do believe that you learn from every piece of work that you do. Sometimes the lessons aren't evident necessarily for quite a long time and sometimes what you learn is don't do that again um and that's a perfectly valid (laughs) lesson as well um i mean i've tried different methodologies uh approaches to writing um so for uh city of vengeance um for that one it was very much following the timetable of history and then i structured my story around that whereas i'm i've just literally within about 48 hours of finishing the next book in the series, which currently doesn't have a title. Um, And for that one, I've deliberately written, it's a kind of locked room mystery set in a convent in Renaissance Florence. And for that, I deliberately did not want to know who done it while I was writing it. I held back as long as humanly possible before saying, this is the person that did the bad thing. Um, but that made my life a whole lot harder, I have to say. There's a lot of crime writers who absolutely say you shouldn't know who the killer is as you're writing the book. Uh, you get to the end, you discover who it is, and then you go back and do rewrites to to, wow. to set that up. You get, you get to the end, you go, oh, it's this person. Oh, okay, right. And then you go back and layer in the clues that lead towards that person so it's possible for the reader to have figured it out. Um, 
I mean, I found that. I found that challenging. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) I I suspect partly partly because I've done so much work with tie-ins and IP, and in order to get that work, generally speaking, you have to do like a complete chapter breakdown for the entire narrative of what's going to happen before you can get the gig. Right. Before you get contracted and before you get, you know, your signature fee and then you go away and draft the book. So I, up to this point, I've been very much a hardcore plotter, total planner, have it all mm-hmm. laid out, which then enabled me to write very quickly when I was drafting, because basically it's like add description and dialogue and on you go, make it as good as you can. But you've kind of, you've done a lot of the carpentry, the architecture has already been done. You just need to come in and lay the carpets. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the the full hardcore plotter version of it. So the novel I'm just in the process of finishing, I have been a lot more at the pantsing end of the spectrum where you are, you know, journey of discovery, write stuff and and find out things as you go along and see where that leads you. And that's (laughs) quite the high wire act. And um, it made me very grateful for the fact that I've got sort of a 20, 30 year career in different kinds of writing Mm -hmm. because it meant I knew I had the confidence of, all of that experience and all of that learning about structure and setups and payoffs and characterization and all these other things that enabled me that when I was having the long dark tea time of the soul and you're freaking out and you're not sure where you're going with the book, you can step back and go, you can do this. You've done this before. Cause it's amazing. The, the, the healing power of you've done this before, therefore you can do it again. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're writing your first novel, you honestly have no idea if you can get to the finish like doing your first marathon i guess and and when you're i mean it's funny because for for particularly for crime as you say some crime writers do say that yeah don't know who's done it until i've finished the 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 story but yeah the the idea of a structure you know the the thing about crime novels especially is that there normally is a structure as you say behind them so to sort of pants a novel like that as they say um, rather than plot it in detail, seems to be a very, very difficult thing to to do. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, any kind of of uh, pants led approach is that a phrase? Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anybody who who decides they're going to write a novel and they're going to pants it, if they don't have experience under their belt, if you're going to pants a novel and it's your first novel, I mean, to me, that's asking for a world of pain. Mm-hmm if only for the fact that you don't have a structure to help you out as you're going along on the journey, you are literally, basically it ends up your first draft becomes somebody else's pre-writing, you know, Mm. somebody else's advanced plotting and structuring. Uh, And it means that if you go for the full pants approach, again, not really a good phrase, um, (laughs) but if you're going for the full pants approach, it means that your first draft effectively is your zero draft. And then you discover your story and your characters and your world because you build it as you go along. Hopefully you make it to the finish line. And then you have to go back to the start and go, oh, right, okay, now I know what my book is about. Mm-hmm. Now I know my world and my characters and I know my story. Now I can write the proper version of it. So the sort of the the, the plotter version enables you to write, in my view, fewer drafts and uh, fewer rewrites as a consequence. Yeah. But, of course, if you've got all the experience in the world, you know, if you're Stephen King, then you kind of know you know how a, you know the rhythm of a book. You know what needs to happen now. You have a sense of oh, this has been you know dragging its heels. Let's you know something needs to happen now. There needs to be mm-hmm. threat. There needs to be jeopardy. There needs to be a turning point. 
Um, so yeah, if you're Ian Rankin or you're Val McDermott or whoever else it might be, then that sort of stuff is almost baked into your DNA as a writer because you've done it so much, you know what needs to happen. Um, you have a sense of when, if it's boring to you as a writer, it's going to, God knows it's going to be boring to the reader on the page. So you can make a note to yourself and say, well, when I come back and fix this, this needs to go faster or this needs to happen more or other things need to occur here because this is dragging. Um, and that comes from experience is where that comes from. But do, do you have, uh, you know, obviously that's the approach you've taken for the for the latest novel, but do you... Do you have a preference or does it just depend on the story you're wanting to tell? Like, would you go back to doing a sort of full treatment almost for another story that you're going to tell? I mean, I think, well, for the next one, which I'm planning, um, the identity of who the Kira Hiller is, I've already got a good sense of them. I don't have mm -hmm. a name or anything yet. But, I mean, I know where it's going and the nature of the third story. It's about retribution and it's going to be, yeah. Uh, so it's the nature of the third one will lend itself to a more plotted and planned version. Also, if it goes ahead, it'll be a home and away fixture. One, one of the detectives is going to be still be in Florence and the other one is going to be outside the city, sort of up in the hills where the, the rich people used to retreat to their summer homes during the heat mm -hmm. of summer. Um, so it'll be a home and away fixture. So it will need some careful choreography. Yeah. Um, so I will be doing more planning for, for book three of, of the Cesare Aldo series, definitely. If only because book two has taken me longer to write than it would have done. I mean, I don't think the lockdown has helped, mm -hmm. if I'm honest, uh, because I uh, because I run the I'm program leader for MA Creative Writing at Edinburgh Napier University. And the lockdown meant, uh, like, I think the lockdown hit about a month after I started writing book two. And that threw everything out the yeah. window. We had to switch to online teaching. Mm -hmm. We had to reconfigure the entire program for the new academic year in September. So that has eaten up an awful lot of my time and energy, unfortunately. So it's meant this book has taken longer than I would have expected. Uh, but equally, I think if I planned a bit further ahead and a bit more so, I think I would have found it an easier write. So that tells me something about yeah. my practice and my approach to it as a writer i definitely think next time i'm going to plan and plot a bit more than i did for this one i mean this one's a locked room mystery and the great thing about crime is that to a large extent the structure is given to you by the narrative engine that you've chosen which is the genre mm -hmm. you know there will be a crime there will be an investigation there will or will or, they will or won't find the solution they will or won't find who did it and they will or will not bring that person to justice. So that kind of gives you your overarching structure automatically. And it's in when do we get in? When do we get out? Where is it set? But then it's all, it's the big saggy middle, which is the doom of, you know, any writer, yeah. really. It's that, you know, anybody, I think most people who believe they have a book in them, what they actually have in them is, uh, if it's a novel, is they have act one. You know, they have the setting, they have some characters. They have something incredible that happens that blows the world out of balance. The character reacts to it. They try to put the pieces of their life back together. It doesn't work. That's the end of Act One of almost any story yeah. uh -huh. with a sort of traditional protagonist on a journey of change. So that's fine. Now, if they're lucky, they know how the book ends. They know, you know, because Act One, uh, this is the thing I, I teach. Uh, I teach a whole module on pre-writing. So what I, which is based on a lot of screenwriting theory, in fact, 
But the idea is that that inciting incident, that thing that throws the world out of balance, asks a dramatic question, whatever that may be. Somebody's dead. Who done it? Why done it? How done it? Is the the crime trinity of what's going to happen? And then, so the that inciting incident asks a dramatic question, and generally speaking, that dramatic question is answered towards the end of your narrative by what's sometimes called the obligatory scene, where which is where we get to the answer, where we have the final confrontation mm-hmm. between whomever it is. So that's fine. You have your anybody who says they have a novel in them has Act One. If they're lucky, they have the ending, Act 3, Act 5, whatever it is. But it's the big middle is where the problems always come and where people who start with enthusiasm usually run out of gas. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around 30,000 words. Yeah, and even even like well-established authors that we've had on always say the same thing, actually. You know, you, you, they, hit, they hit that bit in the middle of the book that where they start questioning themselves, even if they've got, you know, a run of successful books before, it doesn't seem to go away for, for most people either. Yeah, no, because, I mean, I think pretty much all writers I know and I've met, and I've, I've gone to a lot of panels and listened to a lot of podcasts, and, and, and I have to agree with what people say, which is that writers always want the next book to be just that little bit better than the last one. You mm-hmm. always aspire to improve and to you know, to build on what you've learned and what you've achieved and try and take it up another notch. That's the goal. You don't always manage it. And, you know, the ups and downs of careers and the business of publishing, that's a whole other discussion. But you're always striving to try and do the next book to be better and slightly more so than the last one. So that means you're always raising the bar for yourself. So what was good enough last time isn't good enough next time. Also, you really only know how to write a book when you've just finished it which is so annoying Um, (laughs) because you go, oh, oh, that's how I write it, you say, at the end of however many thousand words were required to get you to the the end. And then you can go back and fix it, which is grand because you've got the roadmap now. Um, But you so wish that you, at the start of a book, you were like, I know exactly how to write this book. And generally the few occasions when I've started a book saying, I know exactly how to write this book, hubris has been (laughs) painting the kick my ass uh, somewhere down the road so, so yeah yeah I, I was so I, why don't you tell us uh, we've mentioned it a lot but why don't you tell us about city of vengeance and, and what that's about cool okay so city of vengeance is a historical crime thriller uh it's set in renaissance florence uh in the winter of 1536 which is sort of around the last days of henry the eighth if you want to Tudor comparison effectively so it's it's sort of uh, the the back end of the renaissance you know leonardo da vinci is gone uh, i think michelangelo is in exile by this point um machiavelli has just died so sort of the greats of the renaissance have left florence for one reason or another but the city endures um and my central character is uh he's an officer of the most feared criminal court in Renaissance Florence, which is called the Otto, for short, the Otto de Gardia, Ibalia. Um, and he, so he's an officer of the court, so he enforces the law and he also investigates crimes. Um, and he, uh, in the course of the book, he has to investigate the murder of a Jewish moneylender. And in the process of that investigation, he uncovers a conspiracy to overthrow Duke Alessandro de Medici, who was the ruler and leader of Florence at this point in history. Um, 
And Eldo's problem, so his name is Cesare Eldo, and Eldo's problem is uh, he's only got a few days to try and stop this conspiracy from overthrowing the Duke. But at the same time, Eldo is a gay man at a time and place in history where his sexuality makes him a criminal. So he's an officer of the court, but he's on the wrong side of the law. Uh, And there's a rival officer within the court who wants to uh, bring Eldo down, who wants to destroy him. So the challenge for Aldo is, can he stop the conspiracy to overthrow the Duke and throw the city into chaos before Aldo's own secrets destroy him? Nice. Sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I've I've not finished it yet, but I have started reading it. And one thing that struck me was that um, it's it's written, although it's a historic, historic, it's set in 1536, as you say, it's very modern in its approach you know and the pacing and and the structure and things like that which totally b- pulls you right into the story i think i mean was that a deliberate decision to sort of um bring that into a sort of historical novel yeah i mean i well it, it was a a decision but b it's just it's a factor of the way i write mm-hmm. um I suspect uh, because I trained as a journalist, I, it may even go back to the fact I just read a load of Terence Dick's Doctor Who novelizations growing up. Um, but that sort of lean, paired back style, uh, and then becoming a journalist where everything has to be lean and paired back, and then having worked in comics for—I mean, I've written comics for thirty years. I was a comics editor for the best part of twelve years. Where again, it's about concision, clarity of communication, and then a big focus on characterization. Mm-hmm. So all of that means that the nature of my writing is I can't help myself. I write pace. I just write pace. In fact, the big note I got from uh, Alex Saunders, my wonderful editor at at Pan Macmillan, um, was, you know, he said, like, the pace of your book of the draft of City of Vengeance is incredible. And you can take your foot off the gas (laughs) every now and then. Just give us moments to breathe. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I just tend to write pedal to the metal very much. Uh, it's, it's the way I'm built. So I have to step off the gas. I have to sort of step back and go, okay, I need to remember to give moments for characters to breathe and react and respond and to give the readers a chance to catch their breath in between all the things that are going on. Um, and because the City of Vengeance, it's the sort of ticking clock of the conspiracy is going to happen on this day. Eldo's only given four days to solve the murder of the Jewish moneylender. So there's always this ticking clock. There's always the sense of history is bearing down on the characters. But is the challenge with historical fiction is that you have to remember characters don't know what's going to happen next. Just like we don't know what's, you know, if we went back 10 months in time and it was March and we were going, oh, this pandemic doesn't looks a bit dodgy. Um, we would have no sense of where this was leading or the, the terrible mm-hmm. loss of lives that, that was ahead of us um, because people don't know what's going to happen in history. They only know what happened yesterday. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They may have a glimpse of it. They may have a thought of what they're going to do tomorrow, but you never know what's around the corner. So and- you have to remember that for your characters. But yeah, so sort of my challenge with, City of Vengeance was finding that balance between my natural super pacey page turning style and yet respecting the fact that readers of historical fiction and historical fiction, they love atmosphere. They love that that sort of world building, not in a fantasy sense, but making it feel like you are walking the streets alongside these characters. 
So it feels like you're looking around and you're seeing the, you see the, the, the terracotta tiles catching the sun glowing orange at the late afternoon of the Duomo in Florence, or mm-hmm. you're having to step over the channel in the middle of the mud streets where the human waste runs down the middle of the street. Almost every review I've read of City of Vengeance mentions how pungent the book is for the level of aromas that gets mentioned <laughs> in it. Um, which is, uh, yeah, I hadn't realized I'd gone quite so smelly with the book until people started telling me how richly atmospheric it was. Um, but yeah, it's strange. It's the number of books you read that never mention how things smell is surprising. You know, people will describe how things look or how it feels. Uh, but you, a lot of books, a lot of writers don't really engage all five senses. And if you can just pick one or two smells that are very evocative, and then mention them in the books, then it really it gets into the nostrils, it gets into the imaginations of your readers. So, yeah, I'm sorry, but the next book is equally whiffy. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're writing historical fiction, how, I mean, you mentioned that there was a, you kind of got the structure a bit from historical events, I think. But, I mean, how important do you think it is to stick to history accurately? In so, in so much as history is accurate, I suppose, because different historians will tell you different things. But oh, yeah. Um, but you know, h- how important is that, or or are you? Is it okay in your view to change things, merge characters, and all this sort of stuff, as long as the story's good and you're getting the the sense of the time? I mean, the, that's one of those those questions that you sort of you have to make a choice as a writer is where you sit on the. I am going to be absolutely truthful to history and inform my story around events or eh, I could do what I like. You know, if history is helpful, that's fine. I mean, I tended to go at the, the Hillary Mantel end of the spectrum. She says it's not your job as a writer to fix history. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your job to work with what's available to you. And the reality is, you know, if you're writing historical fiction, there are gaps in the narrative. Also, the version of history that we are getting is partial yeah um you know uh a lot of documents don't survive history and also a lot of the people who uh, were alive at that time did not were not literate did not read and write were not able to share or leave their story behind so therefore there's a lot of absences and gaps history is predominantly written by men uh, men who are educated you know, of wealth or in positions of power. So that means there are vast sections of society that are omitted from the record who are not represented. So you have to think about, well, how to tell that story. Um, and equally, you have to go, I mean, there's some things I think uh, there's a, I put an author's note at the back of um, a historical note at the back of City of Vengeance. And I talk about the fact there's a vital uh, plot incident uh, in the book where historical his, historians do not agree on what date it occurred mm-hmm. whether it was friday the 5th of january 1536 or whether it was saturday the 6th of january 1536 and i i got to a point where i was writing the book and plotting forwards in the book and i went to my enormous bulging billy bookcase behind me which is double stacked with reference tomes and i went through all of them trying to find a definitive answer and in the end i think it was like 70 percent said it was saturday night of historians said it was Friday night. And I was like, oh, right, Saturday it is. And that's what we're going with. But there were things that I discovered when I was writing the book that were hugely inconvenient for my storytelling. And I was like, oh, 
history, you bastard. Um, <laughs> but I just went, okay, well, I've, I've, I've set out my stall. I'm going to let history be my timetable. And if I discover something, no matter how bloody ass awkward it might be, I am going to be truthful to whatever history I can find and point to and say, this is what happened. And I will attempt to form my story around that. So that's what I did. Uh, there were times it was a bit of a nightmare. And also there were times where I would discover things when I was 60,000 words into the book and I would go, oh, okay, right. Well, I'm going to have to go back and fix that then, aren't I? So for instance, uh, because there's a, the, the Jewish community in Florence at the time was only about 100 people. There was only about 100 Jews living in Florence in this period of history during the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. But they were quite important because their ability to do uh, money lending, which was forbidden by the Catholic Church, which was the church at the time in Italy, certainly, and certainly in Florence. So uh, they served a valuable uh, role and purpose uh, within Florentine merchant society, which was basically how Florence was run by bankers and merchants. It wasn't uh, a church town, unlike places like Bologna or Rome. So uh, therefore, uh, when I was writing the Jewish community, I was doing research into it. But it was like I discovered at some point when I was writing the story, there weren't enough people to have a synagogue. They didn't have a synagogue. I went, okay, fine. And then I discovered there weren't enough people to have a rabbi. They just had to get on with, you know, doing their worship um, in whatever way they could, bearing in mind they, there weren't enough people to have a rabbi in the city. So they had to find other ways of doing worship. So that meant rewriting one whole character was going to be a rabbi. And I was like, except they didn't have a rabbi. Fine. <laughs> So, yeah, there would be things I would discover that would be immensely awkward. But I was like, I must be I was I was committed to being as truthful to history as I possibly could. So that's what I strove to do as best as I can. I'm sure there are mistakes and errors in the book, uh, despite my best efforts. But I tried. When you when you start off, I was kind of interested to know when you when you're beginning and you're saying I want to write a, a historical fiction uh detective story you know what end do you do you start with first do you have the kind of story that you want to tell or do you do research into the whole area and just find a pocket of history that fits or do you just look you just read history and let the story kind of form from what you're reading i mean in my case uh the the starting point for all of this was i found a, a an academic monograph about uh criminal justice and hang on, i think it's on my shelf um, criminal Justice and Crime in Late Renaissance Florence, 1537 to 1609. Um, and so I, I, I was in a, in a remaindered bookshop around the corner from the British Museum. I think this is at the end of the 1990s, for goodness sakes. And I opened this book up purely by chance because I've always wanted to go to Florence at that point, but I hadn't been. And it was one sentence in this book that I just opened by chance this page. And it said, the criminal justice system in Renaissance Florence in this period was roughly comparable to a modern police force. And I just went, ding, light bulb. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went, fine, okay, good. Because I love police procedurals and I love crime narratives. And even when I was writing for Doctors on BBC One or Judge Dredd, who's a future policeman anyway, or even when I was writing my Warhammer novels and I was basically just writing Hill Street Blues with the occasional elf wandering past <laughs> in the background. <laughs> I really wanted to be writing crime fiction. Uh, it just took me a long time to come out and admit it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I this book just sort of gave me permission to think of it in those ways, 
to think, okay, well, it was roughly comparable to a modern police force. So one of the things I read in this particular monograph, it talked about the fact that um, they could have what was called extrajudicial justice, which meant if somebody was deemed to be guilty, they could go into the cell. And as long as there was a, a priest present uh, in order to give this person the last rites, they could just, uh, you know, throttle him in the cells, really, if they decided he was guilty. And that was that. There's a bit of judge um, dread there as well. <laughs> yeah, well, it really was judge, jury and executioner. Yeah. I mean, weirdly, it was like comparable to a modern police force, but it was at the same time a massive bureaucracy mm -hmm. um, because they had like something like 60 different courts in part in charge of different aspects of life in Florence. So they had a court in charge of salt. They had a court in charge of uh, prostitution, sex work, which was legal, but it was strictly uh, run by the wonderfully named Office of Decency. Um, so, yeah, so there was all these different courts and, and mechanisms to control how life was done in the city. There was like, I think, one court per thousand people who lived in Florence at the time. Um, so, yeah, so it was a case of uh, figuring out those elements of it uh, and then a ton of research into the period and into how life just the most interesting books for me were actually the sort of the basic books of how life worked, what normal life was like. And those are often the hardest ones to find, whereas big academic texts or stories that tell you about the superstructure of history are fine. Mm -hmm. And there's no shortage of books about artists and architecture. But if you want to find out how a normal person called, you know, Roberto, whatever, uh, Clemenza, then trying to find out what his day was like was actually an awful lot harder. So that took the longest time. And then the character of Cesare Aldo, uh, I was, you know, I knew he was going to have, I thought he would be a captain. And I discovered they didn't really have captains, so he would be an officer. And then it was developing him as a character, giving him a credible backstory that would lead, enable him to be able to move through sort of all the levels of Florentine society from the lowest, lowliest slave and servant up to, you know, be able to mingle with dukes and, and merchant bankers and everybody in between. Um, so it was building a character and then finding a shape for the story. And that's, there's this one moment in history, this one event in history, which sort of is a tipping point in the development of Renaissance Florence and how it was governed through the 16th century. So that's the tipping point. That's the, the key moment in the story that became the, the fulcrum of City of Vengeance. Excellent. And and that's out on the 4th of February, is that right? Yes. So, um, yeah, 4th of February from Pam McMillan in hardback and audiobook and ebook, inevitably. And I think out in paperback next January. And then book two, the plan is for that to come out in February 2022. As yet untitled. The working titles so far have been Nuns, Blood and Consequences. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, for the Agatha Christie fans, and then there were nuns. <laughs> I'm assuming it has something to do with nuns then. <laughs> I don't know what you're basing that on. That's <laughs> wild supposition. Yes, strangely. No, the book two is set in, uh, is set in a convent, and it's uh, sort of the idea that came with just a single image, which was a nun opening a door in the convent and discovering a dead, naked man's body uh, you know, punctured with dozens of stab wounds and with covered in blood. And I was like, oh, that's good. Uh, <laughs> what's he doing there? Why is he, who killed him? How? And why is he naked? 
so yeah so it's sort of like first thing on a monday morning they open the scriptorium to start setting up the scriptorium to illuminate some manuscripts and there's a dead naked guy covered in blood on the floor of the scriptorium and we're off to the races excellent sounds excellent yeah and um, on on route to this being published i just wanted to ask you about the pitch perfect competition at Mm -hmm. bloody scotland so um i think you you won this pitch perfect competition at bloody scotland do you want to tell us a bit about that yeah absolutely so uh, for those who don't know, Bloody Scotland is uh, Scotland's international crime fiction festival. It's been running since, I think, 2012. And each year they have a, a contest called Pitch Perfect, where they have a panel of agents and editors and publishers from sort of the crime publishing, crime fiction uh, publishing scene come up to its Stirling in Scotland is where the festival is held. And they hear pitches from uh, three minutes of pitches from writers um and so what happens is each year uh bloody scotland invites people who have got a crime project they're trying to you know interest editors or agents or publishers in uh to uh, apply for pitch perfect you have to write a hundred word summary of your project and you submit that and then they select from that so each year there's somewhere between anywhere between 50 and 100 people apply eight people are chosen and then uh they have over the course of an hour at the Bloody Scotland Festival, each person will stand up. You have three minutes to pitch your project to not just the panel, but to a room full of uh, uh, fee-paying audience members. Um, and then you you have your three minutes, you sit down, the panel gives you snap feedback instantly. And then after all eight people that have done their pitches and had their feedback, the panel retire to another room to consider their verdict. Uh, white smoke emerges like hope um and then they come back in and they say uh we think this person uh, gave the best pitch sometimes they do are highly commended as well um and actually all the people who have won pitch perfect over the eight nine years that it's been running now have all gone on to get uh literary agents representing them and quite a few of the people who've been highly commended have done that as well and an awful lot of the people who have done pitch perfect have then their novels have been published. Some of them have been bestsellers. So uh, Sirens by Joseph Knox, uh, The Tattoo Thief, Alison Belsham, they both won Pitch Perfect and their books have been bestsellers either in the UK or other territories. Um, so I did uh, Pitch Perfect with uh, City of Vengeance, although I think it had a different working title at the time. I have a terrible, terrible, I'm terrible at writing titles, <laughs> inventing titles for my books. They always get renamed because people go, no, we're not calling it that. Ridiculous. <laughs> uh, it happens all the time. Uh, and so it was with City of Vengeance. It had another name. So I stood up and I pitched um, City of Vengeance to the panel, uh, the longest three minutes of my life. Uh, but boy, had I practiced. Um, I mean, my pitch was, was pretty slick, I think. Um, so I pitched and then uh, everybody else on the panel pitched. Uh, we all pitched that year. Uh, and then Daniel Culver, who was the last person to pitch, he stood up, he gave his pitch, and I went, oh, he's won. He's a, that's a great pitch. His pitch was just prima. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the panel went out, at which point I just relaxed because I thought, oh, well, there's no chance I'm winning because Daniel's was just amazing. So, And then the panel came back in and and announced uh, that, that I had won. Uh, ironically, I actually pitched under a pseudonym uh, because I know some of the organisers of Bloody Scotland, I didn't want to be chosen I didn't want there to be any chance of me being chosen because they knew me. Yeah. I wanted to be chosen because of the quality of the project I was pitching. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so none of the people on the panel knew me except uh, Jenny Brown, who was the chair of the panel. Um, uh, so yeah, so actually when they announced who had won, they said uh, the winner was Charles because my my pen name for the pitch was Charles Otto Volmer, which was my granddad's name. Um, so I was like, oh, he's Charles. And then I went, oh, it's me. Oh, <laughs> slightly uh, fluffed the moment, but there it was. Anyway, so yeah, so so I so I won Pitch Perfect, which was great. I hadn't even finished the book at that point. I think I was seventy thousand words in, but it was a real sort of boost to the confidence. And I finished seven weeks later. I finished the first draft, and then several more drafts. Uh, and then I was querying agents in spring 2019. Um, yeah. And then uh, Jenny Brown uh, became my agent, offered me representation. I was very happy to have Jenny as my agent because she's amazing and wonderful. Um, and then uh, it went out on submission to various editors. Um, and uh, yeah, and we ended up with Pam McMillan. We had uh, several publishers actually made offers on it, but Pam McMillan, I mean, I love Pan long before they became my publisher because I grew up reading sort of Ian Fleming, who was published by Pan, and Colin Dexter's Inspector Morse, all published by Pan, and you know, Anne Cleves and, mm -hmm. and CJ Sampson for the historical uh, crime readers is like the god. Um, so to be published by you know, Pan McMillan, who published these amazing authors, I was like, <laughs> uh, so that was a dream come true. So, yeah, so the that was announced September. 2019 and now the book's finally coming out in february 2021 in the midst of another lockdown well yeah that that, that was the, the what i was going to ask you about i mean obviously <laughs> it, it's a moment when you know lots of authors get excited about the launch of the book and you know mm. this is a book you've been working on for so long mm. and then for it to happen now you know we've, we've spoken to obviously a lot of our guests have been through the same thing yeah. um in the past year but you know does does that take anything out of it at all for you or is it just something different that you just have to cope with well i think it, it's the same for all authors who've had books i mean i've got a lot of friends who've had debuts out uh in the last year um nell patterson who writes for avon uh her book um oh gosh i'm drawing a complete blank on what's the first one called silent house the silent house uh that came out in i think march or april last year just as lockdown was hitting uh and then her second book which was silent night came out november last year when there was another lockdown mm -hmm. and then her third which is the silent suspects coming out in april hoping we'll be out of lockdown by then but honestly she's got to the point now where she's convinced that you know whenever she has a book coming out there'll be another lockdown. Um, but, it's uh, her so, fault. Yeah, she's... She, I think she actually though. did... Man I think her first book, they managed to have one actual live people in a room launch event for her first book. Right. And then it was everything was locked down mm -hmm. after that. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, you would love to have the big launch at, you know, Waterstones or, or somewhere else in a big city and have, you know, 100 people turn up and then all queue up physically and you sign the book and say hello and all your friends and people who know you come along. That would be lovely, but it's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, that's that's just the way things are right now. And God knows there's an awful lot of people got a, a lot worse than yeah. writers whining about not having a, a, a physical launch. So, yeah, have no sympathy for me on that. It would be nice. And there will be other books. So hopefully by the time Eldo 2, Medici Boogaloo or whatever it ends up being called, um, you know, is unleashed next year, then we will all be vaccinated and be able to, you know, meet people for real. Um, but yeah, it, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. So I have a, 
either um, a virtual launch on the night of publication. There's uh, um, three independent uh, publishers in Scotland, uh, sorry, bookshops, independent bookshops in Scotland, uh, Far From the Madding Crowd, the Edinburgh Bookshop, and uh, Atkinson Price have joined together and formed a collective. And so they ha- they've hosted some amazing events over the last year online. So, so we're doing a, um, a digital launch with them. And my editor, uh, Alex, is going to be asking me questions uh, for that. So that'll be great. Great. And looking forward, um, obviously you've got the sequels coming out, you're planning them and stuff, but would you ever think about going back to screenplays or back to comics? Or, or are you kind of firmly in the world of novels for the moment? Well, certainly um, I, I can't see myself going back to screenwriting. Uh, well, for a start, I don't have a screenwriting agent anymore because when I stopped screenwriting, my agent very sensibly said, um... <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's time. <laughs> Thanks. She was lovely. I mean, her name was Katie Williams. She's at the agency. She's a brilliant agent. But it's sort of like I wasn't getting anywhere and I wasn't doing any screenwriting. So she was like, um, I was like, yeah, you're fine. Don't worry. Um, but um, so I probably can't see myself going back to screenwriting. I mean, if somebody felt the urge to option uh, City of Vengeance, God help them and turn it into a film or a TV series, which I, I anything is theoretically possible but i can't see it happening because it co- would cost an absolute fortune yeah um then yeah i would i'm sure i would make sure in the contract that they would be required to pay me for a first draft because i'd love to have a crack at it um but no i think uh screenwriting is probably more likely in my past than my future comics i'm still writing i write for uh egmont sweden which is a publisher in scandinavia so i write issues of the phantom comic for them the Phantom is like okay. a costumed hero who's been going longer than Superman. He's been around since the mid thirties. Mm-hmm. So Perfect. I write for that. Although the only place it's published in English is Australia, ironically, because um, the Phantom is more popular in Australia than Batman or the X Men or Spider Man. Oh, really, the most popular comics okay. character in Australia. Is this and the same in Scandinavia? It's huge. Is it the oh. same Phantom? As in, he was a part of a group defenders of something, a purple yes, and yes, all that sort of thing. Mandrake the Magician. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. It started as a, it was a newspaper adventure strip uh, mm-hmm. invented by a guy called Lee Falk, who also invented Mandrake the Magician and a bunch of other things. And uh, yeah, so, and then it was a film in the 90s when every every comic in the world was being turned into a terrible film in the mid 90s. Uh, there was a phantom film starring Billy Zane and it's got Catherine Zeta Jones in it. Yeah. And the, the tagline was "Slam Evil," which is, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> exactly, it's the, surely one of the worst taglines <laughs> ever. Uh, yeah, it's not the best film. Let's just leave it at that. It's not the worst film, but it's not the best film either. Um, so yeah, so I wrote for the Phantom, and the other project I've been slowly shepherding forward is I have. Um, written and co-created an original graphic novel called Danny's Toys uh, with a Northern Irish artist called Rory Coleman. Um, and so we've been uh, we've been working on that for off and on for two or three years now. Um, and uh, so I am hoping, hoping my plan is to do it as a Kickstarter, mm-hmm. uh, probably in the spring. So I'll do a Kickstarter of that um, and then we'll be able to publish it and people will be able to read it. So it's Danny's Toys actually started as a screenplay. It was a short film I wrote when I was a screenwriting student and which the screenplay won prizes in L.A. and it won a prize here in in Scotland. 
But um, it got close to being made a couple of times, but it never quite managed. They couldn't get the financing together, and then it just sort of interest in it fell away. And eventually, I just it's a story I love, so it's a total passion project, which is proven by the fact that I've been carrying it around for like over a decade. Um, but the passion projects are often the ones that sort of connect to people the most if you can just find a way of getting them published. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so uh, I've turned my original screenplay into uh, original graphic novel uh, working with Rory and we're going to hopefully publish that April, May. We shall see. Yeah, the, the Kickstarter is the way to go with, with comics, it would seem. There's a lot of successful uh, comics Kickstarters now, so... Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So I've been doing a ton of research mm. into into how to do Kickstarter, how yeah. to do it properly, um, and how to do it well, and make a complete horlicks of it. So uh, yeah, I've been I've been gradually filming, building up my knowledge. I've also been su- supporting a lot of other people's Kickstarter comics mm. projects on the basis that you know, when the time comes, I can smile sweetly at them and go, yeah. well. Ship, yeah. shipping costs that's what to be reminded with kickstarter uh, yeah yeah that's that. my worry and also uh with brexit uh yeah. having made shipping to the eu yeah. very complicated at the moment i suspect i will probably do a book i won't ship it into the eu although i wouldn't expect to have shipped many to the eu mm. anyway but i would want to make it available to north american audiences so i'm gonna have to be very savvy about shipping costs because i know it can be hideously expensive yeah to just yeah. ship a book to america it's like it's it's like double the price of the book which just seems mad <laughs> yeah exactly and yet some, PDF, some people will buy PDFs it are for, you know yeah, somebody exactly. wants to read it yeah. they can just they can pay and get the pdf version and you know that's fine i just want it's a story i love and i love the characters and rory's done amazing artwork alex Hassan has done the coloring uh Hass has done the lettering it's all amazing and i've got this great selection of pinups at the back of the book with some amazing artists have done pinups for it, like Duncan Fagredo and Frank Quietly Brilliant. Uh, and a bunch of uh, uh, other artists. So I really want to get it into people's hands. I just want people to be able to read it. And, you know, yeah. So that's, that's it. It's the writing thing. You write because you've got a story you want to tell and you want to share it with people. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. What was the last book that you read? The last book I read was Edge of the Grave by Robbie Morrison, um, which uh, I read in advance proof of it. It's coming out the 4th of March. It's been published also by Pam McMillan. Um, And Robbie, uh, for those people who know their British comics, he's the creator or co-creator of Nikolai Dante, which is a hugely popular character in the pages Mm -hmm. of 2000 AD. And he's written for a load of American comic books like uh, Batman and The Authority and a bunch of others. Um, And so he's written his first novel, which is uh, set in 1932 Glasgow. And that's a a police procedural. It's sort of getting described as Peaky Blinders meets the Untouchables in Glasgow. Oh, nice. Good pitch. And it's, I mean, it's, I've read it. It's, it's hardcore. I will definitely say that for it. <laughs> if you're squeamish, um, but it's a really good story. It's really funny. A lot of dark humor, which is so Robbie. Um, and yeah, that's the first in a series and that's getting some amazing author quotes at the moment. Cause it's, yeah, it's, that's, it's really good. So I can hardly recommend that. Um, so yeah, that's the last book I read edge of the grave, Robbie Morrison out in March, 2021. Great. Nice. 
And what about the last film that you watched? Oh, well, at the cinema or yeah, just like Netflix? Netflix yeah, <laughs> it would be hard to remember the last film I saw the cinema. Yeah, I, yeah, it was. I can't remember the last film. Last film I saw in the cinema. It's too long ago now. Um, the last film I watched. Oh, I got into a bad habit of watching half a film on Netflix or Prime and never quite getting to the finish of it. <laughs> so I'm struggling to remember what the last film I did watch was. Even though it's a half TV, I've just been I'm watching Call My Agent on Netflix, mm-hmm. which is like a French series set in a in a film agent office, which is hilarious. And then Star Trek Lower Decks, oh, which yeah. is a cartoon mm-hmm. set in the Star Trek universe, which is gut-bustingly funny. Oh, I've not started watching that yet. That's on my list to watch. So oh, it's great. You're going to love it. Yeah, uh, You're absolutely going to love it. It's really funny. Uh, and the episodes are really short. They're only like 25 minutes. So that you're yeah, on a quick. Yeah, it's quite nice to have a lot of short show. You can try to spread them out because I don't want to run out of the good stuff. So I think actually the last film I did finish was called The 40-Year-Old Version, V-E-R-S-I-O-N, which is a black and white film. And it's about a woman who was, uh, she was like an award-winning playwright, but now she's just turned 40 and basically all she can do is teach and she can't get her plays on. So she starts rapping. So she becomes sort of like <laughs> a, a latter-day rapper. And yeah, it's really good. It's it's really well observed. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's up for an Oscar or two, actually, if they have the Oscars this year. Right. Um, okay. Cool. Yeah, the 40-year-old version. We definitely, we did finish that. I remember that. So yes, that's a good one. Excellent. Uh, and well, you've answered the, the other question we have, which is the last TV show. So, Tarek, you go into the last. But yes, the last thing we do is a uh, is a quick fire either or. The first one is uh, we'll go for a a, a film one, uh, Dread or Judge Dread. Dread. <laughs> no, no, no hesitation. hesitation there. <laughs> oh, um, uh, Hilary Mantel or C.J. Sansom. Oh. oh. Oh, I mean, they're almost as long as each other now, the box. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, CJ Samson. Okay. That was tough. Uh, TV or cinema? TV. Nice. Um, fancy restaurant or takeaway? Fancy restaurant, actually, if only for the fact I haven't been in one for so long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the last one, audiobook or ebook? Hmm. At the moment, I would say ebook, but only because I'm not going anywhere. Whereas when I was driving back and forth, because I live outside Edinburgh and I had to drive into Edinburgh and back, so it was an hour each way. Um, and I was doing that four days a week. So I would get through a lot of podcasts and, and some audio books. So it used to be, I would have said audio, but these days I'll say ebook. Nice. Excellent. That, that you, just for your information, that used to be real book, ebook, but it was always nearly chosen as real book. So we yeah. changed it because Tarek yeah. was very disappointed. There's a lot of weirdos out there who go on about <laughs> smelling books. Which I don't <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I must admit, I have sniffed City of Vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> and you book smell and it's mine. Exactly. Well, I really enjoyed that chat with David. And I thought it was really interesting what he was saying about the, you know, when you're writing 
not just historical fiction, any fiction really, that a lot of writers can sort of forget to use all five senses when they're mm-hmm. writing it. They'll tell you mm-hmm. what you're seeing, what people are feeling, what they're hearing, but the smell is often forgotten in, in these things or the taste of something, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think there's... I, I, I don't know why. I think it, I don't know if it's just the kind of default view of, of the imagination is just to go for what something looks like or sounds like. But yeah, it's it's so true that that's definitely the... The, t- the the taste and the smell or the two te- the two senses which I think are definitely left behind a lot and I think that's a great tip for writers to to, to hone in on yeah because it can really take you into a scene you know you can yeah, suddenly really totally. be dragged into it if 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 you if you suddenly think oh it smells like this or or, or the food yeah it's a little like small that. thing a small line yeah, about it exactly can, can really elevate the whole the whole section of the paragraph or whatever yeah for sure well um city of vengeance is now out we recorded that just before it was out but um it is now out so if you're into your historical thrillers i would definitely recommend picking it up i have read it and it, it was really good fun and as i said at the start very fast paced so um go and grab a copy now so thanks very much to david for coming on to the podcast and actually next week's guest also has a historical fiction uh, That's link. right, she does. We're chatting with Miranda Malins next week, whose debut novel, The Puritan Princess, is out, and it's a historical thriller again, um, in a different vein. Uh, yeah, perhaps, but, but a different vein, obviously, set in England. It's, it's all about um, Cromwell's daughter. But Miranda has studied Cromwell uh, in detail. She's brought that historical knowledge into the writing of the book. And again, like David, actually, it's interesting. She felt that she wanted to be really loyal to the the history as written, mm-hmm. because you do you do read it historical fiction where it will take it will put it, put you in a place and time, and there'll be certain events that happen, but then other events the writers aren't so fussed about whether it's actually historically accurate or not. Certainly, David and Miranda next week uh, were of the school that that you should be as as accurate as possible when you're telling yeah, the stories. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and it's a. Uh... She picks an interesting uh, time span for her book, which is a kind of um, in between the King Charles I and the Second when Cromwell was in charge, and it's a, it's it's actually quite an, an exciting part of history, I suppose, in the sense that there was a lot of upheaval, yeah. the, kind of the the rule, the rulers were changing, the, all the politics of the day, etc. So it's it's and it's, I mean, that's a prime setting for any kind of story, I think, when you've got that all that background to 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 run against. Yeah, and we chat to her about all of that next week. Uh, so please do tune in for that one. But before we go this week, um, if you enjoyed the episode, please uh, do take the time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app is. That would really help us uh, stay high in the rankings. And of course, if anybody wants to get in touch, they can always send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear, or send us an old-fashioned email, which is which is podcast at rightgear.co.uk. Yeah. Or an even older letter. <laughs> yeah, if you if you really want to, you can find you can find our address on the on the website and send us a letter. Yeah, exactly. Um, probably as likely as getting an email let's be honest (laughs) (laughs) but anyway uh, we'll let you go now and hope you have a great week and hopefully see you next episode see you later